Hey there, welcome to the Deeper Podcast. A podcast is all about how we can love the hell out of this world in small ways that are manageable, that bring a little bit more hope and courage into our daily lives. My name is Sean. I'm one of the hosts of this wonderful community of hundreds of listeners who join us in figuring out how we can make that shift in our lives together. Today on the podcast, I'm so excited that we're wrapping up our mini-series, a series that I've loved to be a part of because I think it's dealing with a question that we all struggle with, which is how are we tolerant in a world of not only people we disagree with, but also really dangerous ideas that undermine the idea of tolerance. Like just the other day in my home country of Canada, there was a giant protest movement across the country of people basically saying that LGBTQ people should not be allowed to exist in the ways that we would determine for ourselves. And what was amazing was that, of course, the counter-protesters against that of people standing up were bigger, but like, what do we do? We're seeing this battle being played out in schools and universities, our own questions of racial justice, questions of gender justice, and even probably in your family, in our families, in our co- in our workspaces, in which how do we work out the differences of beliefs, especially when those differences of beliefs um, are on something really fundamental, something about the core of who we are. Now, last week, you heard Gretchen struggling with this general question of tolerance and the tolerance trap. And today, I'm going to be taking kind of a sidestep. I'm going to be exploring the kind of default assumptions, the assumptions that we make about who is already included, who is already at the table, but we don't often notice it. And so I'm going to be focusing on who is centered centered in our daily lives, centered in the systems of power, and that centering is often so, so invisible to those who are centered. But those who are marginalized by whatever system it is are often deeply and acutely aware of how they aren't at the table. Their perspectives and viewpoints, their bodies don't matter. And so what is the spiritual practice for us of people that are trying to love the hell out of this world to decenter ourselves if we come from a place of privilege or claim ourselves at the center, a rightful place for us at the center, if we come from an identity, a culture, a community that has been marginalized, subjugated, colonized. And so I'm going to share some of my experiences of when I've had to wrestle with this. And I hope that as you're listening, you, you wrestle too, however you're positioned. And I'd love to hear what that wrestling created in you. So I'm just going to dive into this message. One of the downsides of teaching Unitarian Universalist youth that their voice matters is that when they are upset with something, they tend to use their voices. One of the downsides of being a faith that is at its core democratic is when people don't like something, they often feel like they have the power to change that. The other day I saw on Facebook a picture uh, that I had not thought about for a long time. It was a picture of a group of youth, probably 18 or 20, a group of young adults, all incredibly wet. 
In fact, they were in the middle of a downpour. It was a picture that was taken at a youth leadership school in Canada that I and some other young adults had put on about 15 or so years ago. We knew that there were so many youth and congregations in our community that were active and ready and just needed some tools, some preparation, a place to incubate who they are to bring their voices to the future. And so we gathered them together for a full week in Mississauga, Ontario. Funnily enough, one of the members of that gathering, one of the youth who I think was a freshman uh, in high school, just posted on Facebook the other day that they are now starting law school. And I had a moment that was like, whoa. It was a phenomenal experience. We stayed up late. We had worship. We were in community together. But it was on day three that things started to go a little bit awry. Now, if you've ever been a part of a community like that, you know that things going awry is a part of the curriculum, right? How we manage being in relationship, how we manage being in community matters. And so when things started to go awry on the third day, I kind of smiled to myself because I was like, here we go. Here's the real learning. I started to hear grumblings around mealtime. For you see, we had secured an amazing volunteer to do all of the cooking. They were a young adult. They worked at, had worked at a bunch of different restaurants and actually had their own catering business. And so they were up to the challenge of cooking for all of the people gathering, except there was just this one thing that for me didn't seem like a thing until it became a thing, which is that they cooked only vegetarian food. And as a vegetarian, I thought, I mean, I can subsist on this. And how many times have I gone somewhere and there's been nothing on the menu for me? So I'm sure that the omnivores can stand a week of not having their preferred menu. It was day four that the petition started to circulate. It's not fair. The vegetarians took my meat away. I need meat. The organizers were accused of being intolerant of omnivores. One person said to me, the vegetarians, they can eat everything here, and I can't eat anything because there is no meat. Suddenly, the identity of many of the gathered folks who had been passive omnivores beforehand now had been transformed into ravenous carnivores, and they were demanding action. We came to a compromise. Someone went to the store and bought some sliced deli meats and offered them for lunch. I mean, like, I don't eat meat, but I feel like that's like the least appealing of the meats. And yet that first lunch where they were there, boy, did they get eaten fast. It can be incredibly destabilizing on a mental, a physical, and even a spiritual level, when we experience a shift from being centered to being decentered. And, and it very much could have been in the case of the camp that 
some of the campers needed to have meat for whatever their health or what well-being would be. But we looked very carefully at the forms that their parents turned in about their needs. None of them said, must eat meat. But that being said, living in an omnivore world, it would be easy to assume, well, of course they're going to serve meat. I don't need to write that down. It seemingly goes without saying or even thinking about the assumption of being accommodated so baked into the culture that we don't even know that it is, in fact, an accommodation. The bottom line is that if we've always be, been centered, this decentering can be shocking. And it can show us the underlying assumptions about what we think society should look like. I think we've all had experiences in which we've been decentered. Maybe you're a longtime activist for social justice, but suddenly, after years and years of fighting, your views and perspectives are seen as kind of outdated. Or maybe one of your favorite shows on NPR changes time slots. And the new show at 2 p.m. just doesn't do it for you. Or maybe your neighborhood used to be quiet and everyone knew each other. But now there are new apartment buildings being proposed nearby. And you worry it will change the nature of your neighborhood. It can be even more destabilizing when our centering comes from being of a position of privilege. Because often, if we have privilege, be it racial privilege, be it our gender, be it our appearance, it can be that when we are decentered for the first time, we've never experienced the world not accommodating us. And that feeling of the world not accommodating us, of not putting us at the center, is difficult. I mean, for those of us at the center, the history books have always told stories of our ancestors and told them in mostly good lights, flattering lights. The movies that we watch cast people that look like us, act like us, and tell stories of lives that seem like ours. The cultural norms of our communities that we're a part of, be it churches or social groups, they feel comfortable and we know the rules of engagement. It's almost like for those of us at the center, those of us with privilege, the entire society is built to accommodate our desires. Almost as if. And so when we encounter something that challenges that, challenges the lie that we should be at the center, Right? Well, we have big reactions. We have what I like to call a toddler privilege temper tantrum about it. Because it's just not going our way. But unlike a toddler, who doesn't actually have much power to affect change, the privileged temper tantrum 
while developmentally appropriate for not being the center of attention for the first time, has deeply unfortunate and even devastating impacts on other people. For even the most trivial occurrences can elicit powerful chantrums. The changing of a mountain's name. The changing of a military base. The changing of a holiday. The casting of a black actor in a Star Wars film. The reality that women play video games. A beer company working with a trans influencer. Being asked to share your pronouns. All of those actions were met with death threats, boycotts, and sometimes online harassment. When a toddler is having a tantrum, it's because the world is overwhelming and they don't have the skills to deal with it. And a privileged tantrum is much the same. And we have to respond to it with the same sense of compassion as a caring parent because all feelings are okay and normal. But that desire to remain in the center is not. I had experience like this this summer when I was attending the gathering of Unitarian Universalists in Pittsburgh at General Assembly. General Assembly in recent years have adopted a practice of using visual descriptions at the beginning of whenever a speaker comes up and speaks to the gathered community, they would describe themselves for those who, have, who are blind or who have low vision. They might say something like, I'm Sean, I'm white, I'm a 30-something with a mustache wearing a stole. Every speaker, every time they would come up, whether it be worship or a meeting, would describe themselves. And my first reaction to this, and still kind of my gut reaction to this, is I don't like it. I think it breaks the flow of the experience. It brings me out of worship. I want someone to step up there and just begin to lead a meditation and not stop and describe themselves. I even noticed myself thinking, this PC culture has gone too far. Which was a big red flag for me to stop and reflect. Because this this feeling that I'm having of worship being degraded, what's actually important here? Am I simply having a reaction to something new because I wasn't the center of attention anymore? Or was there something else? You know, I've been sighted my whole life. The world around me is designed for me. When someone steps up to the microphone, I can see who they are. I can make guesses on what maybe some of their life experiences have been. You get a vibe from someone based on their appearance. All of that information not accessible to someone who isn't able to see. So the idea of a visual descriptor is something that is inherently designed for not my experience. To make something that is easily accessible to me accessible to other people. And even though it detracts from my experience... What does it mean to want it to stop? On a different plane, we've seen a similar sort of reaction in the response to the 1619 Project from the New York Times. This is an initiative that 
sought to tell a fuller story, a more accurate history of the United States by centering the experiences of enslaved people. The idea of the 1619 Project is that the more accurate story of American history is not of white revolutionaries, but of enslaved people building the foundation, the economic, social, and cultural foundation of this nation. And as they've begun to tell this story, the backlash it faced was significant and telling because it contested that default narrative, that comfortable, that comfortable normative sense of what most of us white folks have been accustomed to, a history that we can look at and see people that generally look like us as speaking as a white person and see them painted in, well, mostly flattering lights. And so suddenly when authors of this project, historians and journalists armed with fact and research, well, when they tell a deeper story, a more complex story, they are painted as radicals. They are maligned not for fabricating tales, but for telling you the truth. And why is that truth so difficult to swallow? Well, because it disrupts the narrative that we've been spoon-fed for generations, a narrative that glorifies white male revolutionaries, promotes an, el an elusive American dream, and romanticizes the concept of a manifest destiny that literally wiped out nations. But it does feel like a loss to replace your childhood heroes with the sobering reality that they were also slaveholders. It feels unsettling to question the fabled tales of your nation's founding when you've been taught to revere them without questioning. It can leave you with a sense of, I don't know who I am because I don't know what story I'm a part of. It feels uncomfortable to reckon with the sins of the past when you've been led to believe that the present is a just reward for virtuous forebearers. We see this again and again. Fights over Confederate monuments in the South. Fights over Columbus Day in Italian communities. Beloved yet deeply racist sports mascots. Legacy admissions in college being allowed, but affirmative action not. The feelings are big. The feelings are real. It is a real loss to give up the center. They are not crocodile tears. They are, in fact, the real reckoning with the challenges of reorganizing who we are when the operating framework from which we have operated in for most of our lives is tossed out the window. And yet, like a gentle parent, we need to offer ourselves and other privileged folks having these reactions compassion and understanding for the pain, but we must refuse to let that pain of being decentered cause us to inflict more harm, to continue the harm that is caused when only one group of people sits in the center. As Resume Menekin would tell us, this pain can become dirty pain that we transform or transfer onto others, or we could allow it to become a clean pain, a pain that builds a bridge of understanding because the pain we feel of being decentered is a fraction of the pain of never having been in the center. The feeling of erasure of being wiped from the history books, of feeling silenced or overlooked, those feelings are nothing compared to the lives of those who have literally been erased, whose lives have never shown up in the history books, 
who have never been allowed to have their voice heard. Choosing a clean pain says the pain of decentering is the price to pay for the world that we've dreamed about, in which no experience, no one experiences the pain of erasure. Just because you're not in the center doesn't mean you don't have a place at the table. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Your place at the table is more secure now than ever. But thankfully, there are forces at work that are trying to grow that table larger and more diverse, making it infinitely richer in the stories it holds, in the lives it honors, and the love it can share. This is the trap of tolerance. For if we simply tolerate the tantrum and give in to its demands because we think it is the same as the other side, we cement those in the center for another century. I guess what I'm saying is this, that truth continues to be revealed. And often those truths are real, and painful because they force us to tell a different story of ourselves. And we have a choice, a choice to forsake that ongoing revelation. We could choose that we've come far enough, learned enough, and that we don't want to learn how we're actively causing pain and marginalization right now. And if we make that choice, we would be forsaking that other key universalist principle that we're all in this together. Because the truth that is unraveling is that we don't yet know how to be all in this together, yet we discover it together. And it sets us free bit by bit, and we realize the bonds that are still there that remain, and we commit to release those two, and we learn and we change. It is a process that will never end. It is hard, it is painful, and yet it is deeply worth doing A couple of months ago, I learned a story about a member of our congregation, Dan Leatherman. Dan died a few weeks ago, but when we were gathering in May to talk about his life and to plan his memorial service, he didn't know he was going to die so soon, but was grateful we had the opportunity. He told me a story about a moment in his life. See, Dan was a professor at Goshen College in Goshen, Indiana. Mennonite University. And in the 1960s, the professors and the faculty of the university, they looked around the table and realized, probably for the first time, because of the rising civil rights and black power movement, that there were only white faces on the faculty. And they decided something pretty remarkable together, probably something possible because of their Mennonite roots. They decided that they were going to search for a new professor and they were going to hire a black professor because they thought it was simply unthinkable to continue with an all-white teaching staff. The catch was they didn't have any more money to hire a new professor. And so whatever field the professor was found in, that professor would resign. That was the agreement they made amongst themselves at the table. And so they searched. They searched for a professor that would come, that would want to spend time and bring their academic career to Goshen College, rural Indiana. And when they found that professor, it was a professor of political science. Now, I was told this story by Dan 
in the way that Dan tells most stories, which is sort of matter-of-factly. He told me that he was teaching political science at the time. And so when they found that new professor, he honored his word and he resigned. And he went to work at the post office, where he worked for the rest of his life. Decentering ourselves can't simply be symbolic. It must be tangible. It often needs to hurt a little bit. But hurt in that way, hurt in that way that is like straining towards the good. That requires that inner strength and determination to say, it's not all about me. That I can't always get what I want. But maybe if I expand my sense of self to be a greater we, that interdependent self that embraces all, that doesn't center one people, type of person, species, or maybe even planet, maybe if we expand our sense of self, our individual displacement from the center, well, maybe that will erase all that holds us back from a collective flourishing of the whole, beautiful, ongoing, and just. Amen, and blessed be. I've gotten some feedback about this message that talks about how it's spurred some, th <laughs> spurred some thinking um, about the reality of our own centering, our centrality, or our decentrality. And that's good. I think that's a conversation we need to have so often about who's at the center, who's at the table, who matters, who doesn't. But it's also a conversation that isn't the end of the story. The table is never stagnant. And, you know, like the example that Dan lived, we have the opportunity to shift it. I'm so grateful for the hundreds of you who are listening. In a few weeks, we're going to be launching something really cool with the podcast that I can't wait for you to learn about. So if you want to be one of the first people to know about it, I invite you to go to foothillsuu.org slash podcast survey. Tell us a little bit about yourselves, and then we, well, we'll tell you what's in store. I'm, as I said, I'm really excited about it, but I can't tell you about the shift that's coming up. Next week, we are exploring a new series. It's all about first times. And my colleague, Reverend Elaine, is going to be diving into the deeply... The question that I know I've asked myself over and over again, of why are first times so damn hard? I think I added the damn in there. I hope you'll tune back for that. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. <laughs>